Well, happy Easter, everybody. It's good to see you all here today as we worship the Lord on this, the specific Resurrection Sunday, the day that we specifically recognize and observe. Though we do recognize that every Sunday that we meet together, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the very reason why the church historically has met on Sundays uh, as started in the New Testament church. We do that because we recognize each and every week that Christ was raised from the dead uh, on that Sunday following his death on the cross. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. We will be in Acts chapter 2 today. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be starting in verse 22. If you would turn your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's not a problem. It is also going to be on the screen. I uh, am a little bit of a Jerry Seinfeld fan, specifically. I really enjoy the show Seinfeld. I was very excited when Netflix brought the show on and um, quickly binged the entire show in the matter of just a few weeks. I enjoy his comedy a lot, his observations that he makes. And there was one specific instance that happens in the show, uh, but it also is in his comedy routine that he does, where he talks about uh, going to the pharmacy and just how overwhelming and confusing it can be to try and choose medicine for something as simple as the common cold, for something as simple as uh, congestion or a headache or uh, aches and pains or uh, whatever the case may be, heartburn, uh, whatever the case is, there is always in the pharmacy an array of medicines to help you with that specific ailment. And he observes how when you, when you pick a, a medicine at the pharmacy for whatever your ailment is, you oftentimes have to decide, do I want to feel good right now or do I, do I want to feel good later? Because you pick up one bottle and it says fast acting. And you pick up another bottle and it says long-lasting. So you then have to decide, do I want to feel good now or do I want to feel good later? You either have to get the long-lasting or the fast-acting. These are the two options with many medicines, as Jerry Seinfeld points out. This morning, as we look in Acts chapter 2, what we're really going to observe and what we're going to look at is we're going to see the effects, we're going to consider the effects and the results of Christ's resurrection from the grave. And we're going to see that unlike those medicines in the pharmacy that are either fast-acting or long-lasting, that the effects brought about by Christ's resurrection, the results that came to bear because of what he did and the fact that he rose from the grave in his body on the third day, that those effects are both fast-acting, as we will see in our text today, but also long-lasting lasting. It was this event, Christ's resurrection from the dead, that sparked the rapid expansion of the kingdom of God. In an instant, what seemed to be overnight, this uh, little group, this little band of individuals who were following Christ, the disciples and, and a handful of others, this movement grew into something enormous in what seemed to be an overnight situation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the catalyst that began that reaction, that began and led to the growth, the extension of the church, and ultimately the expansion of God's grace to the entire world as we see today. As we have 
over the past few weeks, finished the book of Luke. Uh, in the providence of God, he has uh, declared that we would finish Luke right at the time as we approached Easter Sunday. And so just two weeks ago, we finished Luke. And as we were finishing Luke, we were, uh, we were brought to bear with the reality of the cross, of Jesus' burial, or of his betrayal and his death on the cross at the hands of the Romans, this gruesome event. And then we were greeted with the joyous occasion and the celebration and the reality that Christ rose from the grave on the third day, that death was not the end for him, but that he was raised to life again in his actual physical body. And we concluded Luke a couple weeks ago, and uh, I felt the need and, and the value to continue on with the writer Luke's work as we know that Luke, the gospel, was not the only thing that Dr. Luke wrote, but in fact he continued in a part two, which we know to be the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. And I thought it might be valuable for us as we have seen in Luke the resurrection of Christ to now look in Acts as Luke continues this volume two and see what this event, the resurrection of Christ and his ascension then led into immediately following his resurrection. So we'll be looking at Acts chapter two, excuse me, in the day of Pentecost. And I think most time when people think about Pentecost or uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, they oftentimes think of one specific thing, and what is that? Speaking in tongues, right? That was the event, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of, of the Holy Spirit indwelling the believers, the flaming tongues that came to rest over the apostles, over the disciples, and then they began to speak in all kinds of various languages, the uh, the, uh, the record in Acts says there were several different languages that were all spoken in. These disciples, having never spoken in these languages, not being trained in them, started speaking in all kinds of different languages. And, and this was truly a miraculous event when these disciples all began to speak in tongues in various languages. And yet, today, my purpose is not to bring us to that, though that is significant, that is amazing, but rather my hope is that today we'll see that this instant in Acts at Pentecost and specifically Peter's sermon, there's actually something far more significant that happened than just the miraculous spiritual gift of tongues, as amazing as that was, but something even more valuable is discussed here in this text in Peter's sermon what we actually see here is the outgrowth of what it is that Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. And so today, we're going to read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22 and making our way through verse 41, where Luke writes, as the Apostle Peter is preaching, and says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was, imp it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see, that set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you so inspired Peter to preach and Luke to record this beautiful and powerful and enlightening sermon that Peter gives in Jerusalem on this day of Pentecost. Lord, we ask as we observe his words in, in your word today that you would guide us, that you would help us to see and understand, that you would help us to avoid distraction both in this moment and Lord, also as we study Lord, Lord, that we would see the glorious reality of the resurrection and the effects and benefits that it has brought. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we are starting here, our text in verse 22, we really are starting in the midst of Peter's sermon. Peter already started his sermon, his proclamation to the crowd as the crowd saw all these men and, and saw them speaking in tongues and many were amazed, saying that they hear their own language being spoken, and yet there were many there who wondered if they were drunk. And Peter takes the first section of his sermon, the first few verses, and, and explains to them, no, these men are not drunk, but what you are seeing is what was prophesied in the prophet Joel, that the Spirit of God has come upon them and has manifested himself in this way, and, and these men are filled with that Holy Spirit that was prophesied so long ago, he gives an explanation of what it is that's exactly happening and a defense of what these disciples are doing. And then as we begin our text today, we see 
starting in verse 22, which is point number one, Peter then comes out swinging. Peter's statements here in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 are really quite astounding. He comes out and says, men of Israel, you remember, you remember Jesus, that guy who did all those wonders and signs and works, obviously from God? Yeah, that one that you crucified? Yeah, God raised him from the dead. Peter comes out not pulling any punches, but comes out swinging as he begins this proclamation to these Jewish people, to this Jewish crowd. It very much reminds me of something I saw last weekend. I, had the, uh, I got to go to Guns and Hoses downtown at the Ford Center last weekend, and if you're not familiar with what Guns and Hoses is, it is a, it's a charity event where uh, law enforcement officers from various branches here in Evansville and in this area battle against different firefighters and EMT workers in the boxing ring. They enter into this boxing ring, and these two people who are not boxers, but just large men who are able to fight fires and, and uh, take criminals down, enter into a ring and box each other for charity. It's a really cool event. It's really fun to be there and watch. But I'll tell you, the most fun matches to watch are not the ones where the guys actually have a little bit of form and they use their footwork and they kind of dance around a little bit. They know what they're doing. They're doing it right. But it's nowhere near as fun to watch as those guys who have no idea what they're doing and don't care. Because you want to know how they come out of their corner of the ring? They come out flying, just like this. Haymaker, haymaker, haymaker. No form, no jabs, no footwork. They are just, they're looking for that KO off the bat. And it's awesome. I love watching these guys come flying out of the ring and they come out swinging. Just everything they have is going into every swing they have. And then by uh, uh, minute number two, they're like, oh my goodness. I just can barely lift their arms. But it's, it's awesome to watch. It's so much fun. Those are the most fun matches. Of the, the ones when they come out swinging. I don't want to see them dance around. I don't want to see them hugging on each other. I want to see blows thrown as many as possible and as fast as possible. I think that's the approach that Paul takes as he preaches this sermon at Pentecost. Paul, Peter. I have a very bad habit of saying the wrong name. I think I do it all the time. My wife tells me almost every week, yeah, you said the wrong name again. This is Peter speaking. And he comes out swinging as he preaches the gospel to the Jews. He does not hold back but goes directly at them. Peter goes directly at this Jewish audience and not backing down out of fear of offending them. In fact, he speaks to them with a, with a kind of boldness that I think most Christians today would describe as offensive and off-putting and most would say this is an ineffective evangelism strategy as we preach the gospel. To be so bold and go directly at people and declare to them their guilt in such a bold way. And yet we see the results at the end of the sermon, don't we? I think this ought to inform the way we preach the gospel, the way we evangelize. Peter was in the midst of a Jewish crowd and comes out boldly declaring to them, you killed the Messiah. Not holding back for an instant, and yet so often we're afraid that people won't like it if we tell them that they're a sinner. We're afraid that people won't like it if we 
tell them that there's only one way of salvation, and that's in Jesus Christ. And for fear of losing a friend, we so often hold back from the truth. It's my prayer that we, as we would proclaim the gospel, would have the boldness of Peter. Not even caring, though he could have been killed in the midst of this crowd, did not hold back, but boldly proclaimed the guilt of these men, the guilt of sinners, and yet the goodness of Jesus Christ and salvation. Peter points the finger directly at these men. He says, you know this man who did signs and wonders, did them by the power of God, the Messiah? He's the one who you crucified by the hands of the Romans. And yet at the same time, Peter points the finger to God and says, but all of this was according to his plan. It was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Peter says. This is an amazing and somewhat confounding statement to us, to us, is it not? And yet it's a statement that's made throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, even throughout the Old Testament. That though evil was done in this instance, that these men acted in a terrible and wicked way, they were lawless men, yet God's sovereignty is so good and so great that all of this was according to his decree that Christ would suffer and die at their hands in order to save sinners and be raised again on the third day. This is what we call the doctrine of concurrence. That though these men were not absent of guilt, Paul clearly lays that out for them. They were not absent of guilt in this instance, even though it was according to God's plan. But rather what we see at play here is both man's responsibility for sin and yet God's sovereignty even in the midst of sin even working through sinful, wicked men to bring about his will and the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This will always be the case, no matter what is done, no matter how bad things get for us, no matter how evil people are to us, we know that everything that we experience is according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, even the most evil act in the world. In these first two verses, Peter establishes his case, his case that Jesus, the one wrongfully executed, is the Messiah. He is the one sent from the Father to bring salvation as demonstrated by his signs and wonders and works done in their midst that they witnessed. Then after establishing this point, the fact of who Jesus was, the fact that he was put to death at their hands, he then turns his attention to the resurrection. Point number two is the resurrection foundation. We see this in verses 24 through 32. As Peter in verse 24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's emphasis, his defense of the resurrection makes up the heart of his sermon here in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Of all the things he could talk about, of, of Jesus' active obedience, of, of Jesus' atoning death, all of that is important. He touches on much of that. And yet, at the heart of his sermon is the resurrection. And I love the way he says it in verse 24. That he loosed the pangs of death. Loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates for us his power, the power of God, over death. Death seems to us like such a powerful force in the human experience, does it not? 
absolutely unreversible. The debt that all men pay is something that is unavoidable, something that comes for all people when we go to funerals, when we are in hospital wards, emergency rooms, ICU units, we see the reality of death and it feels so powerful over our lives. And yet we see in the resurrection that the power of God and Christ's death and his resurrection makes death look so powerless. It makes death look so weak that it was not even possible for Christ to be held by it. The resurrection of Christ is central to Peter's message because it is central to the gospel. That the bodily resurrection of Christ is not a tertiary issue, it is not a secondary issue, but it is central to the gospel. So that to deny the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead is to lose the gospel. It is to deny the reality of the truth that is in Christ Jesus. If you do not believe in the resurrection from the dead, then you do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have abandoned scripture altogether. For this is what has been clearly attested to. This is the foundation for our faith and for the church. To prove his point, Peter appeals to Psalm 16 where David wrote prophetically of the Messiah where he says, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. He goes on to say in verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter is writing here uh, of what David says and saying that he wrote as a prophet, that he wrote prophetically. And he says this because we can look and see that his grave is still with us. That David died and he stayed dead. And what has his body seen? It has seen corruption in the grave as all human bodies do. Peter says clearly that Peter, that David was not speaking of himself here, but was speaking prophetically, was speaking of the one who was to come, of the Messiah, of the true Holy One. Which is why he says, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us. But he says in verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. After pointing to this prophetic psalm, Peter then changes and moves his appeal to the personal witness of the resurrection in verse 32, where he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter is beating home the point of Christ's resurrection, of the reality of it, of the truthfulness of it, and of the centrality of it to the gospel. This, the resurrection of Christ, is the foundation of Peter's message, and it is the foundation of our hope also. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been dead, Paul goes on to say that we are above all most to be pitied. We are still in our sin. Our faith is futile. The foundation of the resurrection is central. And this resurrection, this foundation to our faith, to the church, is a firm foundation. It is one that, despite all the onslaughts, has stood the test of time and stands today 
as a beacon of hope in the valley of the shadow of death. The church has not been built upon the foundation of a dead prophet or a teacher who is long gone, but on a risen Lord and Savior. So that we can say with the psalmist, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even death itself loses its power, has no hold over us, and even though we see it all around us, we know that it has no ultimate hold over us. Indeed, as Peter says in verse 24, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death never stood a chance over Christ. And the good news is that for those of us who are united to him, it's not possible for death to hold us either. Point number three, the continued work of Christ. We see in verse 33 through 36, Peter then shifts to what it is that Christ has moved on to after his resurrection where he says, verse 33 and following, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the, Holy, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here, Peter is directing their attention, the attention of the Jews and, and our attention as readers to the reality of what it is that Christ is doing now, that Christ now, having been raised from the dead, has been lifted up into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God and is reigning as Lord and King having authority over all things, having all things put in subjection under his feet. Verse 36 produces for us what has been a proclamation of the church for centuries. This proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And this proclamation, I think, loses its weight for us today. We sometimes fail to see uh, the significance of this passage, partially maybe because we're too used to it, perhaps. But I think also because of the context in which we live is so different from when the early church was experiencing such persecution. For indeed, the, the early church uh, under Caesar faced a lot of persecution for various reasons. But one thing was that Caesar proclaimed himself to be Lord. In fact, it was expected of Roman citizens that you would proclaim Caesar as Lord. But the Christians, the church at that time, knew that they could not. And to refuse to proclaim that was to risk death, punishment and death. That is when this proclamation, Jesus is Lord, finds its origin, makes its rise, that the early church proclaimed with boldness and in the face of death, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This was a proclamation true to scripture, true to Acts chapter 20, 22, but one that could very easily cost you your life to proclaim out loud. And it has so much significance even for us today that Jesus is the one who has dominion over all things, including our lives and the whole world. We see here in 33 through 36, the fulfillment of Psalm 132, this, uh, the promises that were made to David so long ago 
Psalm 132, verses 11 through 18 says this. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is where Jesus now sits on the throne, the shoot of Jesse, the one who sits and is now reigning on the throne. That Christ, after he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and is not sitting up there doing nothing, but is now working on our behalf, is now uh, working for us, providing for us an excuse, providing for us a plea as as the song that we sang previously said, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. Jesus, who now intercedes for us on our behalf, is working for us and is pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us. It reminds me of the story that we see in the book of Genesis of Joseph, this one who his brothers abused so greatly, who was sold into slavery, who was Uh, abused and faced such hardship in Egypt, but ultimately was raised by God to rule over all of Egypt, sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh, second only to him. And all of this, why? So that salvation could be brought to God's people. For it was through Joseph that the people of Israel were spared during the famine. Had it not been for his position, having authority over all of Egypt, over all the land, God's people would not have been saved. They would have had no hope. Jesus is the new and better Joseph. He now sits at the right hand of God, having dominion, having authority, and able to bring salvation for his people through his work. Finally, point number four. We see in verses 37 through 41 that now after Peter has come out swinging early in the text. We see the Holy Spirit now comes out swinging in the final verses of our passage. Verse 37 and following says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What we see here is not the results of a great orator one far greater than any other orator the world has ever seen who was able to speak with such power and skill that so many people were cut to their heart. That is not 
to knock at Peter or his ability, but it is to say that the results that we see here at the end of our text do not come because of Peter's ability, but because of the Holy Spirit's work. That Christ sitting on the throne, pouring out the Holy Spirit, he is now going forth, working in the hearts and the lives of the hearers of the gospel so that they were cut to the heart. The apostle Peter is doing something here as he is preaching to these crowds and the, re- the results that we see of all of these people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that it looks and feels an awful lot like a Billy Graham crusade, doesn't it? All of these crowds being preached to and all of these people coming forward and proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection, his ascension, the sending of the Holy Spirit began yielding immediate results here on this day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were brought into the covenant family of God and were given life by the Spirit. Peter was doing crusades before crusades were cool, right? And here's the cool thing, is that Billy Graham crusades, though many people came to faith in Christ, and I would never doubt that, one of the criticisms, one of the issues with these crusades that were done, Billy Graham crusades, was that there were thousands and thousands of decisions made for Christ, of proclamations of faith, of those who said that they had accepted Christ through the word that was proclaimed, and yet what we see strangely is that church growth did not come even close to matching the numbers that were spouted through Billy Graham crusades. That's not to say that there were not many who were saved. In fact, uh, some of you might know or or perhaps your father or grandfather was saved through the preaching of Billy Graham. And there were many who were and, and actually saved. And yet we see that there were also many who proclaimed faith, but yet had none. No Billy Graham crusade ever had what Peter's sermon at Pentecost had. That being inspired scripture providing receipts for the number of conversions that took place. Yet that is exactly what we have here in Acts We have no reason to doubt the reality of what took place at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write, as we see the Holy Spirit working, cutting them to the heart and bringing them to salvation. As I said at the beginning of my sermon today, the effects of the resurrection are fast acting. And we see that demonstrated here on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out and thousands came to faith in Christ and turned from their sin and trusted and were saved. A mere 50 days after Christ's death. And yet we see here the instantaneous nature by which the Holy Spirit began to work through Christ's resurrection and ascension as the foundation. The results are instantaneous that 50 days later there are over 3,000 converts to Christianity. But I also said that the effects of the resurrection were long-lasting. We see this cited in verse 39 of our text. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We see the results of this still taking place today. We still see today the Holy Spirit calling people to God the Father. We still see today people being cut to the heart by the gospel. We still see the work today, the results of the resurrection of Christ taking place 
even in our midst today. And we will see them from now until eternity. As we conclude, I, I think it is helpful and I think we can find great comfort in reminding ourselves from time to time of exactly what it is that is in store for us who belong to Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just as God did not abandon Christ to the grave, we too, though we will die, will not be abandoned to the grave. When the text says that God loosed the pangs of death, he did not loosen them for Christ only, but for all those who are united to him by faith. Romans chapter 6 tells us that if we are united to Christ in a death like his, we will be also united to him in a resurrection like his. That Christ's bodily resurrection serves for us as a demonstration of what we have to look forward to. That he was, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the first fruits of the coming harvest. That we look forward to that day when we will experience a resurrection like Christ when all the saints who have died will rise out of the grave and will bask in his glory, the lamb who sits on the throne and rules over all creation, and it will be a glorious day. We see the scene of the new heaven and the new earth, new earth giving us hope in Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four, where John says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is good for our souls, is it not? To remind ourselves of what it is that we have to look forward to. Though we see death still exercising some power in the world today, we know that there will come a day when death shall be no more. That the victory over death that Christ won in his bodily resurrection, he won on our behalf of all of those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is what we have to look forward to on that day. All of this, the hope in the coming new heaven and new earth, where there will be no more pain, no more death, where every tear will be wiped away, every broken heart shall be mended. All of this is made possible and is a coming reality because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This truth is so important, which is why Peter in this sermon devotes so much of his time and his energy and his efforts on it and why it is saturated throughout the book of Acts and throughout the whole New Testament. You will be hard-pressed to read through the New Testament and not see the resurrection cropping up all throughout. It is so central to the hope that we have. The effects of Christ's resurrection are both fast-acting, as we see in Acts chapter 2, and long-lasting, as we see in Revelation 21. But I would offer to you a warning, because this is true. This hope that we have of a coming resurrection is true only of those who belong to Christ. 
only of those who have repented and turned from their sin and trusted in Christ for their hope and salvation. This hope in a coming resurrection is not for those who make it to church according to a certain standard that they or someone else has set. This promise is not for those who have done a really good job at being really good. It is not for those who have recited catechisms. It is not for those who have entered the confessional booth too many times. It is for those who have trusted in Christ Jesus by faith and turned from their sin. If that describes you here today, if you have been cut to your heart the way these Jewish men have been, recognizing your guilt and your sin before God and seeing the hope that is found in Christ Jesus alone because of his resurrection, then the hope of Revelation 21 is yours. But if that is not true of you today, then that hope does not belong to you. But all that belongs to you is the hope of a resurrection unto death, as John writes in Revelation. But that doesn't have to be the case. Does not have to be the case, for the Lord does not pour out His grace in a stingy way. He is not uh, hoarding His grace only for a very, very limited, best of the best cream of the crop. No, He pours it out freely. As Revelation 22, 17 says, this is in the concluding verses of Revelation, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That life and hope is available to you without cost, without price, if you would only trust in Christ for salvation. Life is yours and hope is yours in Christ Jesus because of his resurrection. We see the results and can experience them even today. Let's pray.